I'll end up with a question. Somebody says, well, I was born in Dubai, then I came to Canada, and I moved when I was 25 to the States, then I came back, and then I moved to Hong Kong, and then I came back to Canada again. <laughs> They'll say, uh, uh, okay, I'm about to turn 65, how much am I, am I going to get? And I always just look confidently say, I have no idea what <laughs> John. John, well, I would hope that many of our listeners, this isn't the first time that they've met him or heard of him, but if for some reason it is it, it I can't talk. <laughs> Surprise! If for some reason this is the first time you've heard of John Stapleton, he was a longtime public policy person. He still is. He's advocating for people in poverty. Um, he has also written the, I mean, to me, the the number one most valuable resource in personal finance, which is the guides to retiring on low income, the guides to what you'll get from CPP and OAS if you're a recent immigrant to Canada or years ago immigrant to Canada, and how all of those things come together to create the kind of retire, retirement planning that's the part that I'm always really interested in, but the kind of retirement planning advice that a lot of professionals that should know, maybe don't know. Um, so we're just going to pepper him with questions, but John, we are super, super excited to have you here today. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So John, why don't you just tell us, I would love just to hear how you came to where you are today. I'm sure it's a long and winding road, but give us the highlights. Uh, well, I can tell you that uh, right now I'm uh, 68 years old, but when I turned 60 uh, in uh, 2010, uh, and I'd been out of the public service, for, uh, I was a benefit designer in the public service in um, what we commonly think of as social assistance or welfare programs and disability programs. So uh, I spent half of my career um, doing policy, writing cabinet submissions, that sort of thing for, for the government in power. And I spent about half of it uh, in uh, program implementation where, and um, every so often I got to write a policy and then had to implement it, which is quite daunting. And, and you often think, oh, oh my, why didn't I write this differently so it was actually implementable? But in any event, uh, so I had been out of the public service. I left when I was uh, 52, and uh, as I was turning 60, I got involved with something called NICE, which is a national, um, uh, I guess it's an institution, national uh, initiative for the care of the elderly, which was a federal uh, and a public uh, policy, private uh, university partnership of uh, of some sort. And I said, well, well, what sort of advice do you give to people who are turning 60 and um, they're you know they're in their last five years of their uh, uh, before their retirement, and uh, and they might be choosing to get early CPP or not. Um, they might be uh, uh, putting the final bit of window dressing on their um, RSP, and and at that time in 2000, 2010, we just had this spanking new program called the Tax Free Savings Account. And what sort of advice do you give them? And um, and so I picked up a number of their pamphlets and uh, and basically asked that question. I think there's a song that said, is this all there is? And uh, 
because I didn't see any really, uh, it, it didn't really direct people, didn't tell them how the programs worked, who were they, who they were for, and, and more importantly, um, how those programs would impinge on, uh, on retirement on a low income. And, and they had a special concern for people who are on a low income, because if you're rich, well, you, you, you don't need uh, as, as much planning, you're just um, managing your wealth, so to speak. Whereas if, if you don't have any wealth, how do you manage your income security programs, your tax instruments and that sort of thing? So make a, a long story short, they, they had very little on this. They had things like tip, um, file your income taxes. And um, he um, talked to somebody about whether you should take early CPP. So it was, it was nothing really there that was concrete. So I said, this is something you really ought to do. So I spent all of 2011 agitating for somebody else to write this material. And once I hit two, uh, 2012, and of course the major CPP changes that took place at that time, I said, okay, it looks like nobody's gonna do it. So I just sat down on a, a typewriter, and not typewriter, but I have a computer, and I just started to write it. And I had some partners in crime, and I had a good designer um, who could put the material in a in an attractive format. Because if you don't do that, you can't. It's hard to attract funders. Funders like things that look look smart and and good. And then I uh, also had a long time, actually a forty-year gal I met in university by the name of Sally Macbeth, who uh, runs a shop called Clear Language and Design. And she asked me, um, um, what level do you want to pitch this at? And she, uh, uh, and she said, there's three choices here with your materials, grade six, eight, or 10. And I said, well, what's that really? And she said, sun, star, globe. I said, okay, let's go for the sun, because a lot of people will be, uh, uh, so, so that was put through their proprietary software to ensure that when you read it, that someone um, with a grade six education would be able to read it. So you can't use words like proprietary and prosaic and things like that. You have to keep all the words simple and the software will spit those out. So, uh, and then the editing is done and the design, the typeface, the white space, all of that is part of the clear language and design um, uh, package. And so when you go to the back of um, that, that, the booklets you were talking about, it has a little seal at the bottom left that says um, um, that it has a, uh, it's award, it has an award for clarity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's their own award. So they make sure that you get the award. <laughs> you just, you just have to, um, to do that. So uh, in 2012, I was talking to um, Ellen Roseman, who suggested that she says, why, why don't you talk to the library about making these presentations? And so I uh, started with the library uh, in Toronto in 2012 and uh, did a uh, presentation with uh, Ellen Roseman where she introduced me um, she's from, the, from the Toronto Star. And uh, I'm about to give my 64th uh, presentation of retirement on a low income tomorrow at the Asian Court Library in uh, in Toronto, and I have a special uh, presentation for Scarborough. In the same year, I was lucky enough to do a, uh, I was on a panel with Rob Carrick, where we did uh, two presentations, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Um, so um, uh, we both got to listen to each other twice, and I, I still recall that um, 
in the second presentation, Rob was starting to, somebody got up and, and asked the question, well, why don't I get this advice from the banks? Uh, and, and Rob just grabbed the, the microphone from me. He says, John, do you mind if I answer this question? And then he said, the banks, you know, banks aren't a social service agency. They're there to make money. Um, and um, and that uh, people who are lower income or poor are really people. Um, they're just for the banks. They're just rich people that don't happen to have any money. So they so they take a wealth management lens to people who have no wealth, and uh, it never goes it never goes that well uh, unless somebody at the bank is actually being proactive in terms of understanding. Uh, the income security programs and how various different tax instruments like RSP, TFSA, RIFs, and that sort of thing actually impinge on uh, on a low re uh, low income retirement. So that's that's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the? I, I always want to know what's the degree of error that can happen if somebody gets like what's the worst case scenario? where somebody gets just the opposite advice from what they should do. If, it, if they are being given advice from a wealth management lens and they don't have wealth, how much does that impact them over their lifetime? Uh, I, I've seen situations where um, the, the, the quantum would be in the fifty dollars to $60,000 range. In other words, someone who um, uh, saved entirely in RRSPs but did not understand that they were getting uh, little value or no value from the tax deduction because they didn't understand how a tax deduction worked. Um, put no money in a TFSA because they were told to put money into an RRSP first and then follow that by a TFSA. Now that sort of advice is less and less um, now as the TFSA is maturing as, and is better known, but that's certainly the advice that was given us just a matter of rote for, um, for years. It's RSP first, TFSA second. And then they were told um, to wait uh, before um, taking um, CPP um, either till they're 65 or even to consider doing it until, they're, until they were um, uh, age 70 because that option was available to them. And of course, since the, um, the uh, recovery rate on GIS is 50% and actually goes as high as uh, up into the 75% range for the GIS supplement, uh, then to have money in the, and, and then taking money out of RSP while taking your CPP late. Um, I did some calculations that showed people by the age of um, 75 or so were about 50 to $60,000 behind. And that's because of higher GIS clawback on on yeah. CPP and RRSP, and um, uh, yeah, gen generally speaking, that's the big one. And then not having money in the TFSA, which of course wouldn't have the uh, um, the RIF bear hug that you go with, that we all go into at age 71. Uh, the the other important thing, just while while we're on that, is that. Um, um, because low-income people, we all have financial crises at some point. We either have a family issue that we got to take care of, or um, and we're seeing that more and more with uh, seniors in the uh, 70 to 80 range, where they'll have adult children that that, that have difficulties. Or it could be as simple as uh, as a car breakdown. You got to get a new car. Uh, seeing people taking money out of their RRAFs and therefore having it balloon on them in terms of their ta their actual um, tax rates, whereas if they had the same money in a TFSA, um, what would happen? And as I like to say, nothing. 
<laughs> you just take it out and there's no tax on it. So uh, uh, it, it's, it, I actually can sell people more easily on the idea of the financial crisis once you have a RIF versus the TFSA than, than the whole issue of clawbacks, which, um, which are, is conceptually difficult for some people. Yeah, I mean, the issue of clawbacks is an important one to understand, though, for people who are retiring on relatively low income, who are working with relatively low income, because, I mean, the highest effective tax rate that we have is not on rich people making a ton of money. It's on uh, seniors who are receiving GIS and getting it clawed back and taking other money out of their RSP. And, and those clawbacks combined with the income tax, can it, it's... As far as I know, the highest tax effective tax rate we have. Yeah, and uh, I can actually do you one better because people at the very, very low end, people who have less than two thousand dollars a year in income, um, get a bit of money from a program called Gains, which is automatically uh, comes to you automatically through your GIS application, and the the recovery rates there uh, start at one hundred percent. So the marginal effective tax rate for gains is 50%, which adds on to GIS, which is another 50%. And then uh, when you see people who are working into their early senior years, 65 to 70, and are in social housing where their rents go up uh, while their income security is going down, uh, it's not uncommon that I've not uncommon at all that I've seen uh, uh, recovery rates. Um, uh, at a, at a hundred at 115%. And that's for starters. Forget about what comes off your EI, CPP, all that sort of thing. So it's Why? the poorest of the poor. Why? The poorest of the poor, and it's women. And uh, women, racialized people, people who are are, are going to have a greater uh, difficulty with English, who are uh, the least able to understand uh, that that can happen and and especially where i've seen it is with uh, honorariums um and as you may know the um uh, uh cra for years has has a pol had a policy that um any honorarium money over $500 must be reported so people who are working with their local church group people are working doing uh, minor um, speaking engagements or helping in the community to get an honorarium through a nonprofit, often in cash in the back office that's being recorded. Um, I had one fellow who was on the gains program and um, he had an honorarium of $1,730 and all of it, all of it was confiscated off of uh, GIS and his gains um, his gains payment and um, with with absolutely no, no knowledge that that was happening. The, re, the way I discovered this is that I predicted for him what his subsidized housing rent was going to be and I put it at 418 and then he got he, he said well I, I, they're only charging me 390 a month for my income and I said well that, that's impossible because um, uh, do you have any other income? He couldn't think of any. He says oh well they give me cash over at the, um, this place called the Dream Team, and uh, uh, and I wonder what that if that could be. So we phoned up CRA, and sure enough, because the honorarium was over five hundred dollars, and since two thousand and thirteen, CRA has been vigorously enforcing honorarium reporting. Before that, it didn't. 
But after 2013, the uh, you'll, so you'll have people getting minor amounts of cash from their local community to help out, to help with their expenses. Um, but that's being recorded as um, honorarium money over $500, and therefore it reduces both GIS and gains. So it's often the really, really poor um, people who are being hurt the most by this. How how did that happen? Maybe that's a silly question. It's just it is it just is it people that have the least amount of advocacy for them, and and therefore it's is it I'm, does it is people slipping through the cracks and and programs not designed well, or is this exactly what's I don't know. I'm just kind of left with that. How does that bug? function? Yeah, <laughs> and, a feature and, or a bug is a perfect question. In in any of those um, situations, you're going to find that the lowest income people are the least able to self-advocate or advocate in a way that would speak to government policymakers. In other words, you have to put stuff in the language that gov uh, that public policymakers will understand. Uh, whereas the the poor person who is getting stuck on that honorarium thing was saying, I don't seem to be doing that well. I seem to have less money, even though I'm getting more money. Like, so they won't be able to articulate it. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing it really is that our retirement systems were built on, designed for, uh, and, um, and have perennially um, gone on the assumption that people will not work in retirement after age 65. And if you look at any of the statistics coming out from the census, from the tax files, we know that um, women, men, um, ever since um, uh, mandatory retirement was ended for Ontario, of course, that was 2006. But even before that, you started to see Canadians earning more and more and more into um, uh, in, into retirement. And that graph, was, if it was a stock, you'd buy it. The graph just shows the uh, incredible um, uh, infusion of, of, of older people in, into the labor force. And the policies simply haven't kept up to date. They are mm -hmm. simply now uh, predicated, as they always were, on the idea that at 65 you would retire. And so the fact that we would give you uh, money from the GAINS program and GIS and it would be recovered at 100%, um, didn't, didn't make a difference because you wouldn't have any outside income. Uh, so it, it's really uh, policy and attention to um, uh, uh, changes in our in our labor force that um, have taken place, and the policy simply hasn't caught up with it. And the advocacy um, uh, efforts in that regard are um, have been have not been uh, heard, and they and they haven't been all that effective. Is, so is it, it's a lack of, it's not a lack of advocacy, it's a lack of political will? Uh, I don't think really governments have heard it. Hmm. They, they, they have yet to hear it. I mean, I've had my, my own chance because I was on the advisory committee to um, uh, Minister Jean-Yves Duclos, his poverty reduction committee. So he sure, sure as heck heard it from me and um, any opportunity that I get to to, to say it, um, uh, and I know that staff are very um, sympathetic to it, but it's just a question of a government um, right now in the la latter part of its term and um, getting ready for an election, and um, I just wonder how much um, helping, uh, helping poor working seniors would be seen as, uh, uh, as, uh, as an election, and a, as an election winning thing, it's probably gonna be 
other areas that they're um, but we're, but we're very hopeful that in the next budget that they um they will at least um start to um listen especially on on such things as there's a GIS exemption for wage employment only of $3,500. It's been $3,500 since 2009. It's not indexed, even though OAS is indexed, GIS is indexed, EPP is indexed. Uh, yet the earnings exemption that they have is uh, has not been indexed and it only applies to wage employment. So good luck if you're self-employed, it doesn't apply to you. Uh, it doesn't apply to your RRSP cash out. It doesn't apply to any any other form of income, and it doesn't apply uh, to those honorariums that people get for helping out at, in their church basement. What's the calculation on if we brought that, even just even like the, the bare minimum to, to bring that up to the correct level to index it and then to make it be all kinds of income? What is the cost of that? Someone has calculated, I imagine, the cost of that to the government. Oh, I'm sure they'll say that it's in the, the ten million, tens of millions of dollars. But I would take. Um, uh, but what I would do is I'd rather than just look at a simple balance sheet and say how much would that cost. I would do what I like to call a wider balance sheet, and saying, well, um, when people are poor, um, uh, do they visit the hospital more? Do they visit their um, doctor more? Their use of the court systems in terms of being evicted. And all that goes on with that, our, uh, our court system, when people become homeless and then get picked up on the street, um, there's a, there's a, we know that the cost of poverty um, is a higher cost than the amount of money that, that we'd have to spend to alleviate it. Yeah. And so, but the governments are always averse to putting upfront money into something where they're going to reap the benefits of it later. And of course, if uh, different levels of government, one level of government could spend, yet the other might reap the reward of that. And what we've always tried to say is that 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 if this is just different pockets on the same pair of pants. We, we this is uh, so what those savings. So it's it's uh, time to have I think either what we might call a mature conversation or an adult conversation on uh, on seniors working and um, and. Uh, are, do we just not want them to work, and especially with poor seniors, do we are, do we really wish to saddle them with um, marginal effective tax rates that go, that go above 100% in a, in a variety of occasions? Yeah, and always hoping that the answer to that question is no. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, sometimes wondering. Sometimes. Sometimes wondering. I, I had a question. It's 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 connected to what we're talking about a little bit. But I, I read uh, the piece on your site recently. You were talking about basic income a little bit, and I'm sure you've written about it more than just what I read. But uh, as a another program that was briefly tried, and uh, I really liked some of the parallels that you were making between everybody has basic income, but it's that fourth oh, rule yeah. of being born into the the right parents, choosing your parents, and yeah. those of us that were lucky with that choice got basic income from the get-go and those of us that right. didn't don't necessarily have that advantage and, and uh, I like the framing of that but I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit around that program and, and policy like that and, and whether you think it would be helpful. Well of course because the, uh, the Ford government canceled the pilot we're really not going to know yeah, uh, and the Finnish government actually canceled their pilot so it seems so, like uh, part one of the things that governments are doing these days are 
dipping their toe in the water on this and deciding that they don't like it. And I guess okay. the, the whole idea uh, is that it's free money coming from the government um, uh, to people who the rest of the public believes are not are, are not working. So we're, we do take care well, well, fairly well of the bookends of our society in terms of um, uh, both both seniors who um, who even where seniors are in poverty, they're in shallow poverty. They're not in deep poverty like people who are uh, in uh, the deep end of the pool for the working poverty or or receiving social assistance. And we're also really picked up in terms of um, uh, income security for children. So it's that last nut to crack is our um, uh, is our working age adults and uh, the idea of providing uh, more in income uh, to them. Uh, I think the main thing is that um, social assistance, for example, is a destitution model that also s suffers those same um, very steep clawbacks. Um, uh, for example, if someone's on social assistance, they get CPP, it's clawed back at 100%. EI is clawed back at 100%. Um, uh, any other government program, workers' compensation of any sort. So uh, social assistance looks at itself as a last payer. And because destitution is complicated, they have complicated rules to keep people um, destitute. And if you read the, uh, the Auditor General of Ontario just came out with a report saying that the rules aren't being properly enforced. Well, they're almost impossible to enforce. Um, I think if any of us were on social assistance, um, we, you'd probably be, be um, constantly a follow of the rules because, they, because they're so complicated. A good example is um, someone who, um, let's say they, they have a part-time job, not enough to get them out of social assistance, but let's say one day after their income reporting period, uh, their boss phones them up and say, somebody's sick, can you do another shift at the restaurant or something yeah. like that? That person goes in and works that shift and gets money for it. You know what the social assistance system calls that? They call that an overpayment. <laughs> and when the public hears overpayment, um, that's automatically, oh, well, somebody's cheating, it's fraud, it's... Um, a mistake, uh, and yet it's not. It's exactly what you would want the person to do in in that situation yeah. is to take that shift for from the employer, reduce the amount of money that they're going to get from the system. But uh, it's such a closely managed system that um, uh, people are constantly being kicked off. It. My my own view is that um, it's that it's first of all so closely managed, and 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 people are in such jeopardy of going off it all the time that they actually, that it becomes like, if you, if you think of um, that situation where you, where in a cupboard you put too many things in an overhead cupboard and you keep piling things in there and one day you need something from it and you go to pull just a mitten down but everything falls down because everything's just so precariously up there. That That's often an analogy that, that social assistance recipients use when they talk about uh, well, if I just go get a job and I work a little bit, then I report it to the system, and then all everything starts flying apart all over the place. First of all, uh, the 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 subsidized housing said, "Well, we need more rent from you next month because you just we need 30% of the <laughs> income you just made." Uh, and the social assistance system, well, we need to call back some of those dollars that you just made, and then people who might be getting childcare, legal aid, counseling, 
other social services, all of them are very interested in, in reducing the amount of their subsidy based on somebody getting some money from somewhere. And when that happens, not only do you get high marginal effective tax rates, but you also, um, the, the systems do, do not work together to, to do something in a harmonized way. They all are looking at clawing back that same dollar uh, yeah. and they all have their own rules for doing it. And um, there's never been an, enough, um, I guess, oversight in the system for those systems to get together to think about, well, let's do this in a coordinated way. Let's not just all go in like a free-for-all on that same same dollar that that person earns. So what happens, they say, well, uh, my best, my best plan is just to not work, to not try to get any other resources, and then everything will stay inert. I won't be, I won't, as 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 we call it in the business, awakening the beast, you know, which is government. <laughs> keep that closet yeah. closed, right? Because yeah, keep you don't that touch closet anything, closed. Yeah, then it won't explode. And, yeah, and to me, that's why people, uh, the the largest single reason why people don't go into the labor force when they actually should. It's such a frustrating thing from the outside to see this, like where there's so much complexity and there's so little support. You know, there's yeah. obviously complexity. I'm not saying that, you know, for very high net worth, managing wealth at a high level, there's a lot of complexity there and there's support there. But that support exists and the means to ex like reach that support exists. Low income, there's the, I think sometimes from the outside without thinking about it too much, it seems like, oh, how is this idea that you don't have wealth to manage, therefore your finances are sinful. And you've just outlined the fact that that's not the truth at all. And in fact, you're incredibly complicated. There's multiple balls to balance and there's very little support. Who are they supposed to go to? Like where, where are, what can people do when they want somebody to help them, when they want something to kind of help them wade through all that complexity? Are there programs that exist like that? How can we get well, more it, programs? Well, in Toronto, there's uh, good programs like uh, um, uh, Wood Green Community Services and West Neighbor House, uh, Neighborhood House, where people can go in with their uh, with with their uh, low-income financial situation and and get it sorted out. And some of the best people are ex-bankers who actually um, found that they really couldn't work in the banks anymore, given the, yeah. given what happens to people. And so we have some. Uh, Recovering bankers in those uh, in in those situations who are very good in Toronto. I've managed to put together, I think, a number of um, financial planners and other people who are willing, either on a pro bono basis um, uh, or you know, pay pay paid advice. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that that um, they don't have any income, but they do have assets of uh, of sorts. I've seen people. Who actually own multiple non-performing properties, and some, you know, say the 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 husband and father in the family who control, who did all that has passed away, and then they're suddenly left with this. And I I think for financial planners, um, there's actually a gold mine of um, of people out there who actually could afford to for afford paid advice to to sort themselves out, but they're they're not gonna. They go to the bank. Um, I keep advising people that um, uh, that if you get free advice, it's probably worth what you paid for it, and uh, and so they often um, uh, find people who are not uh, who who don't have the uh, uh, knowledge of the income security system. Now, one of the 
I, I think where people, when bankers come to my uh, sessions and, um, you know, I'm critical of them, but uh, they, they have a good point when they say, where can I go to get the sort of advice that I need to be able to do this, um, to be helpful. And of course, there, right now there is not a course um, at the Canadian Securities Institute, but we, um, we have a course ready that was done by, um, written by, um, financial writer and um, advisor, um, Alexandra McQueen, who writes for the Globe and Mail. And, um, and so we're just taking it through the process of the Canadian Securities Institute. The, one of the big issues for them is how many people are actually, financial advisors would actually take a course like this because there's not a whole lot of money in low-income people. And although that's, that, that is often the case, I have, um, to the financial advisors that I use who actually do understand things like Henson Trust, who do understand GIS, who understand um, early CPP, et cetera, um, and when to be in a TFSA. Uh, those people, um, the, uh, when, when I refer people to them, they often find out that they do have financial resources that where they, uh, they could actually uh, they could actually charge them a fee and in, yeah. in good conscience because they've actually unlocked um, some of the wealth that they have. But those people usually don't get found. Uh, I have a couple of people at the banks, and when I refer local people to them, they're always amazed. These people are in our catchment, um, but we've never heard of them. We've never seen them. Yeah. Uh, and then once they they have started to take some of the income security issues. Um, uh, seriously, um, then there actually is a market out there yeah. um, for, um, that that exists. And I think if they if they understood that and the CSI understood that, then then you're going to see people taking that course. I think you made a really interesting point earlier about how the communication problem that we have goes both ways. You know, it 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 comes from the financial into uh, financial kind of point of view, not being able to articulate programs that exist, how they work, all of that, but also people that need help not being able to articulate what the frictions are, what the help that they need, and that they can afford to pay it. Like there's a there's a communication yeah. back and forth about what that arrangement could look like. And it's that's an interesting problem. It's not clearly not the only problem, but it's yeah, an interesting they, problem they, to solve. They, yeah, the big problem for people who um, who who come in um, and say attend my um, my presentations on low income, they often are confused between tax instruments um, or let's say taxation vocabulary. They don't understand the difference between a non-refundable credit and a refundable credit. They don't yeah. understand the difference between a deduction and a non-refundable credit. They don't understand uh, use of such terms as exemptions, and they will use them all interchangeably. Yeah. The problem that's worse, though, is that you take those tax, uh, various tax um, elements, and they are not able to articulate the difference between that and a um, financial instrument like a GIC, stocks, bonds, annuities, mm -hmm. uh, ETFs, etc. And and so if you don't understand the difference between an investment um, type and a tax uh, and an element of the tax system and then combine that 
with not understanding what's in our income security system like GIS, OAS, GAINS, CPP, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and, and then other elements of the income security system are how they, how they come together. I can do a whole presentation and have a big question period and, and have somebody get up as one woman did and say, you still didn't tell me whether I should get um, an RRSP or a, or a GIC. Yeah. So then I have to explain, well, a GIC is a financial instrument that you can that you can put in into yeah. a tax a tax situation. And if you don't understand the difference between a GIC and an RSP, and then say, well, how does that relate to OAS and a refundable credit? And all of that is just this bubbling cauldron of stuff of, of terms that you don't understand and how and, and their pedigree. Um, yeah. then you're not going to, you need somebody to sort that out for them. Yeah. So, uh, and so I could talk for two hours and then have someone ask that question. Yeah. Um, uh, or you didn't tell me, um, uh, and, and somebody, you know, will ask questions like, well, when do I have to put my TSA into a TFSA into a ref? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's that type of thing where they don't understand the actual, um, yeah. uh, the typology of all the, yeah. the the different elements of our system. It's it's a difficult thing to 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 get if you don't have an end to that already. It's so many acronyms. There's so much jargon. Like why wouldn't it yeah. all? It, it takes learning a, a craft, learning a, a new system. If you're not even if you're not engaged in all the time, yeah. it can't happen immediately. And it's it's difficult to figure out best ways to learn when you can't necessarily take all the time to walk somebody through every step. And if somebody well, isn't connected to the learning, it can be difficult to just expect them and, and to have the societal expectation for them to learn on their own, to Google things and figure things out on their own. Yeah. And that's that part of the uh, theory of, um, of financial literacy um, uh, talks about that in terms of people. Um, and I always like to give the example of uh, of listening on the radio to something that you know, let's say nothing about, like somebody comes on, there's a new type of smoke detector or something like that, or or um, one of my favorites is what you put in a recycling bin. I think we all got ourselves skilled in that, and then now most of us are de-skilled in what <laughs> what we're able to put put, put into into one of those bins, and uh, I, I I use that because. Um, uh, People, um, one, the theory of financial literacy is that some of us, most of us would say, okay, well, I'm going to sit down with this thing. I'm going to get the financial, sorry, I'm going to get the recycling thing off the internet. I'm going to look at, okay, I can put in styrofoam and I can't put in a plastic bag or something and figure that out. But what if you don't have the conceptual or the critical thinking skills to be able to work that out for yourself? Uh, what the what the literature says is that people split the difference. And what I mean by that is they'll say, well, the the person saying that the plastic can go in and the other person saying it can't go in, so maybe it can't. You know, so and I will never get to the point of designing. And with financial literacy, it's the same thing. So I'll say, here advice from the banks on TV. Um, you're richer than you think when you're really not richer than you think. And And, and then on the other side of it, somebody like me, um, then they tend to, um, immobilization is the result. 
So mm. they'll come to me and say, well, now I really don't know what to do because yeah. I heard this uh, at the bank and now you're saying the opposite and I have to decide and I don't know how to decide because I don't have the critical skills to be able to do it. And, um, and, and most of us in, in most instances do have those skills, but for someone who's financially illiterate or, or, or not literate themselves in terms of being able to read um, or have difficulty with that, then that's where they have real, real difficulties. Hmm. Uh, so what I do is I take things that are in their life. I, I don't try to teach people a tax system. I take things that, are, that, that they are fluent in um, okay. and conversant in in their own life. And so I, I take them to... Um, I take them to the grocery store. I said, does everybody know how to shop? Everybody knows what a coupon is. Everybody knows what a gift card is. And then I say, well, a refundable credit is like a gift card. And uh, the non-refundable credit is like a coupon off your taxes. And oh, that's great. When, and then say, if you go into the grocery store, like somebody who sits there and has a big pile of receipts for that recently canceled transit credit, and doesn't understand why the tax guy doesn't take them. I said, well, that's like, can you take a coupon for Tide and walk it over to the cashier? Are you gonna, and it says $7 off Tide. What's gonna happen if you take it to the cashier? And they'll say, well, no, you can't take it to the cashier. You gotta buy Tide. And I say, yeah, well, that's exactly like the tax system. You know, if you have no taxes to pay in the first place, your non-refundable credit for your transit slips is like you going over to the cashier. Then they get it, you know, like it, I love that. You, rather than teach it to them uh, conceptually or 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 within yeah. the tax frame, take it outside of that frame to something that they that they are yeah. quite fluent and certain of that. Yeah. I, when I say, can you take a coupon to the cashier? Um, I get a loud no from everybody in the in the crowd. They all know that and they're and they're and they're sure of it. And because they're sure of it it creates that 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 confidence yeah and then they and i do the same thing with um uh, having to file your taxes and having to uh, uh, and having to keep your information up to date which they often don't do and don't understand and then i just take it i i just take the car analogy and say um, if a cop stops me um, I see that siren and they're pulling me over to the side. What are they going to want to see? And of course, it's your, you got your registration, your ownership, your insurance, your license. And they look at the sticker on the back of the car. So there's four things that you have to keep up to date. And you know that if you don't keep those up to date, you're in trouble when you get stopped. And then I just carry that over yeah. to filing your taxes, applying for GIS and stuff like that. And there'd be four things there. And then, then they sort of get it. Yeah, here's things you got to do. I know I have to do this. So now I know I have to do this other stuff. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. And it, it really is. It's just it's bringing into their own lives the things that they already know, things that people already succeed at, and building on confidence that they already have instead of, you need to be a different person completely to understand finances. <laughs> you need to change everything about you. So hope you don't yeah. like that, you know? Um, yeah. Which is and I, if they can take that over, then they, uh, then they walk out of it getting it. And um, they also have the... Con I, I find the same thing with um, financial advisors who have a a family member who is say on social assistance ODSP, um, someone in their family where they have had to work all this out themselves because it's a brother or father or somebody in the family. Those people are really fluent in this stuff. And those are yeah. the people that I actually um, refer 
um, people from the libraries too, because they know they're going to do a good job with them. Why? Because they know it, but they don't know it because they're in the financial industry. They know it because of a family member. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that, well, there's certain processes because there's, there's this certain element of, of, you know, the things that you learn academically through a textbook, but walking through the actual process of going to a bank, which is the on the ground, how to get money out of an RDSP versus this is how an RDSP oh my, works yeah. academically. Like you've got huge a difference between the actual experience, but if you can't relate the experience and, and really kind of relate to the difficulties on the ground of what you're dealing with, um, right. you know, it, it's the, the, the level of empathy that you're offering is a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so the 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 um, the the presentations I do for a place like Scarborough, where the place I'm doing it is um, is a riding that where 60% of the residents on the census said they they uh, understand neither English or French. <laughs> so when you get into that situation, um, uh, you're going to find a lot of people who. A few returning Canadians, but mostly new immigrants, and the yeah. amount of old age security is that they get is um, is much less than than other people get. And if they're sponsored immigrant, it's going to be different again. So, and to complicate that even more, there's 56 countries that have social security agreements in with Canada, and so I'll end up with the question: Somebody says, "Well, I was born in Dubai, then I came to Canada." And I moved when I was 25 to the States, then I came back, and then I moved to Hong Kong, and then I came back to Canada again. <laughs> and I'll say, uh, uh, okay, I'm about to turn 65, how much am I, am I gonna get? And I always just look confidently say, I have no idea what <laughs> And the reason for that is the person, A, uh, I don't know if they became, uh, if they became a permanent resident in Canada, they might have, then they moved to some place that had a social security agreement with Canada, moved back to Canada, then moved to a place that had no social security agreement in Canada. So I don't know how to count their residency. And yeah. each of the social security agreements are different. And I say it might surprise you that I, I haven't memorized the content of all 56 of them. Yeah. So the, and that's a way of uh, saying, uh, introduce just the whole idea of the massive complexity. And, yeah. and doing this in immigrant communities, I'll say even, um, Two, three years ago, um, I just wasn't, I was able to give broad directions, but really wasn't on top of it. But I'd say I'm just yeah. about, um, just about at the point where I think I can give reasonable advice on this. And, that. and I, I don't see anybody else around who can. I just see yeah. no one. Uh, you know, you're either going to get it from the government on their hotline through Service Canada if you get somebody who's really decided to internalize this. Um, otherwise, you're, you're just speculating as to, how it must might work because it's so so complicated mm -hmm. well uh so we haven't even scratched the surface there's a whole list of things that i think we could do a, a five-hour episode <laughs> yeah i would be interested i know you have to go though so yeah. uh so thank you for coming i thank you so much thanks so much for listening i'm chris entz and i'm an advice only financial planner at rags to reasonable.com and I'm Sandy Martin. I'm an advice-only financial planner at springplans.ca. I'm John Robertson. I'm the author of The Value of Simple, a practical guide to taking the complexity out of investing. And you can find my blog at holypotato.net.
If you liked what you heard, please go to iTunes and leave us a fantastic review. It helps us, helps more people find the podcast. And if you really liked what you heard, check us out at Patreon, Patreon slash Because Money, and uh, donate a small amount per podcast. It helps us keep the show running. Have a great week.